0: Good morning. My name is Dan Kent. I'm a teaching pastor here. Thank you for joining. Thank you for joining online. Uh, Greg uh, is sick, and it's interesting. I was thinking about this. Four of the last five sermons that we've had here at Woodland Hills, it's been either Shauna or me, and uh, we're the Musecast. Shauna and I, and the Musecast is taking over this church, whether you like it or not. That's <laughs> that's what I'm seeing in all of this. Uh, so this is the last sermon. In our Sermon on the Mount series, we're gonna have a panel discussion where we reflect on it, but this is our last, like, just normal sermon. And I gotta tell you, there's a lot of pressure about that because how do you bookend a series that has gone for two and a half years? Isn't that, I mean, what do I even do? There's a lot of pressure in that. And I think it's just really curious that Greg developed this cough <laughs> under this pressure. That's very interesting. Uh, No, you know, I'm actually really excited because I I do have something I want to talk about. Uh, I'm going to use Greg's title because the the title is great. It is uh, One with Authority. And I hope that you see, I'm not going to have time to describe it or explain it, but I hope that you see the multiple meanings in this title uh, as I go along. There's too much to talk about in summarizing the Sermon on the Mount. So what I want to do is I just want to look at this last little section of verse uh, that is sort of an afterthought in the Sermon on the Mount, and I just want to talk about like one problem, one challenge that I have as I look at the Sermon on the Mount, really as I follow Jesus in general, and I just want to share that with you. And so the the uh, t- to start with, I want to start with this. I want to start with a story before I get to the the verse. Uh, And I don't know if this is the right way to do it, but this is the way I'm going to do it. But I want to talk about my Uncle Casey. And um, my Uncle Casey, I I love my Uncle Casey. He was so funny. And when I was a kid, uh, he's the first person that just just made me laugh to the point where it hurt, where I couldn't, like I had a hard time breathing because I was laughing so hard. And he was just so fun, and he was always telling stories. He was always telling jokes. He was always finding fun things to do when I was with him. Well, he was in the army, and this is in the 1970s. And in November of 1978, he got a call from his unit commander or whatever. I don't know what the names of the ranks are. I'm a pacifist Christian. I, I, don't, I don't understand the details there. I apologize. Uh, but he got this call from his commander saying, hey, we need you to come down to Fort Bragg with your unit, bring a couple days' worth of supplies, and we'll tell you more information along the way. So he goes to Fort Bragg. They put him on an airplane And it's one of these military airplanes, and it's a six-hour flight, so it probably wasn't very pleasant. They have no idea what they're doing. Him and his unit are on this airplane. They land on this runway in this jungle, uh, and then they get on board these helicopters. And they're told now that they're in Guyana in South America. They take these helicopters up over the jungle, and then they're told why they're there. And the reason why they're there is because there is this American religious organization, this American cult is what they were told, that developed this community in Guyana called Jonestown. And what happened was the, this is what he was told, we developed more information as we went along, but what he was told is that the leader of this cult convinced all of the people there to drink this cyanide-laced Kool-Aid. Uh, and this is where drinking the Kool-Aid, that phrase comes from, where you are just so brainwashed that you do whatever the leader says. It comes from this story. And so now the army was called in to retrieve the people who had died and bring them back home. And there were over 900 people. And he said that when the helicopter was descending, before the helicopter even landed, he could already smell the horror of the situation. And they ended up collecting over 900 bodies, men, women, and children, put them on helicopters and brought them home. And he said that n- the only person talking the whole time was the commander because everybody else was just so horrified by what they were doing. And he said that he didn't say anything until he got back to Fort Bragg, which is amazing if you knew my Uncle Casey because, man, that guy was always saying things and, and even he was just so caught by this. And it's, it, just, it really struck me when, when I heard about this because, I mean, this was in 1978. This is after we had seen the brainwashing of the Nazis, the brainwashing of the KKK, and so many endless cults and religious organizations. And then after that, it's like we didn't learn our lesson. We had cults in the 1980s. We had Heaven's Gate. We have, even now, we have, I don't know if you've heard of Nexium is a cult uh, that is making the news right now. And Plus all of these financial scams, you know, Bernie Madoff and uh, Theranos and the FTX uh, collapse that's going on right now, Enron. Uh, and it just seems to me, when you look at the world that we live in, it just seems like it's just this carnival of just like charlatans. It's this, this uh, the feeling I get is that everything is like a cult. <laughs> I feel like there's just betrayal and, and deceit all around us. And so that's the world that we live in, and that's the world that I am aware of, that maybe it's just my psychological thing, but I'm in touch with that. Like I, I, My radar is always open for that type of stuff. So then I come to the Sermon on the Mount, and I bring all of that with me to the Sermon on the Mount. Just like all of us, we bring a whole bunch of stuff to the text when we read the text. And so this is what we read in Matthew 7, verses 28 and 29. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Uh, And it's interesting that the crowds were amazed uh, not at Jesus' genius, not at his uh, theatrics, not at his sense of humor, but at his authority. There was something about him. He carried himself in a different way. He spoke in a different way. He made some very grandiose claims. In fact, even here in the Sermon on the Mount, he says this in Matthew 5, 17. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law. Well, first of all, (laughs) who are you that you think you could abolish the law if you wanted to? But that's what he says. I have not come to abolish the law. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. In other words, everything in the law and the prophets, which is basically the Old Testament, everything that that is about is fulfilled in me. That is profoundly grandiose. And then later on, he gets really explicit in, uh, I think it's John five thirty nine, He says, you search the scripture for life, but you don't come to me. And scripture is all about me. In other words, what he's saying is that this book that's supposed to reveal God It basically reveals me. And then he gets like just blatant uh, in John 14, 9. He says, if you see me, you see the Father. In other words, hey, you're looking at God here is what Jesus is saying. You you can't get more grandiose than that. That's about as grandiose as you can get. So (laughs) what does all of that mean? And this is my question. What does all of this amazing authority that Jesus shares, what does that mean to someone like me? Who has this fundamental distrust of authority? I don't, I, as a default, I don't trust authority. And and the fact that Jesus had this amazing authority, it makes it gives me weird feelings, even. Uh, because the fact is, is that almost every cult and almost every financial scam, there's almost always some charismatic leader who has this charm and charisma. They seem so credible, and they seem so special, and they promise that they have special knowledge or they have some unique insight that nobody else has. And yet, they each cause so much damage and so much harm. And so, I think a lot of people are like me in that you develop this almost allergic reaction to words like authority and submission. Because... (laughs) We don't want to become mindless zombies. We don't want to become like those cult members. And so for us, words like obey, comply, submit, conform, those are swear words. Those are, especially in America, those are swear words. But the problem is, is that when you encounter amazing authority, it does trigger a response. There is this prompt to follow. Like Jesus, for instance, the disciples are in the boat. Jesus is going ahead, I'll catch up. <laughs> They're like, all right, so they go out on the boat. All of a sudden, Jesus starts walking over the water toward the boat. He's demonstrating this profound authority over nature. And the immediate natural response by the disciples is, I want to do that. Can I do that? Amazing authority always prompts a response to follow. And you see this uh, in action, too. When, when an authority teaches something, you are left with a decision. Am I going to follow that teaching or am I not? And Jesus says just before this passage in in 7, 28, and 29, the last kind of um, parable or analogy he gives is that if you hear my words and put them into practice, you are like a wise builder. But if you hear my words and you don't put them into practice, you are like a foolish builder. And so the question is, is who would be so foolish not to follow Jesus' teaching? And I think... There's a couple reasons why a person might hear Jesus' teaching, might encounter that amazing authority, and still not follow it. One reason is because maybe people don't really believe the amazing authority. Maybe Jesus is not really who Jesus says he is, and I totally get that suspicion, I live in that perpetual suspicion of people and things. So I get that. And that's why so many great minds and so many theologians and so many philosophers wrestle with whether or not Jesus is who Jesus says he is. And in fact, uh, my favorite book, and I'm not just saying this because they're my coworkers and my mentors, but my favorite book on this topic is The Jesus Legend by Greg Boyd and Paul Eddy. It really is a a great work, if this is interesting to you. Greg gave a sermon in February of uh, 2021, and it was called Jesus, the Rock of Ages or Off His Rocker? (laughs) It's a great, great title, and he was very proud of that title, I remember. (laughs) But it's a great sermon where he basically defends that yeah Jesus is who Jesus says he is. So if that kind of intellectual uh, kind of questioning is important to you, which it should be, I think I, I encourage you to uh, check out that sermon. We're also going to be starting a series in a couple of weeks called Unraveling Truth, where we're going to be looking at a lot of these types of questions from a philosophical kind of rational perspective. But I am not going to give a defense of Jesus' authority here. And the reason for that is because I think that you can believe all of these things. You can believe that Jesus is who Jesus says he is, and you can still miss the point. I think that you can get all of the mental stuff right, but because of your own authority issues like I have, you can still never experience the transformation from Jesus that Jesus wants you to experience. Because what happens is, you know, bad things happen in life. We trust people, and we get betrayed. And then what do we do after we get betrayed? We're more careful next time. We build a little wall. And that wall gets bigger and better at keeping out bad things. Of course, it also gets better at keeping out good things. <laughs> and so we build these walls, and, uh, and, and when we let our fear and our wounds and whatever other authority issues we have, when we let those thrive in our lives we end up holding our trust of others hostage. And when we hold our trust hostage, that's guaranteed it's going to stifle our growth and it's going to basically sabotage all potential transformation. You know, we might love Jesus' teaching, but still, even though we love Jesus' teaching, we have all of these unseen stumbling blocks inside of us that keeps us from following and obeying his teaching. We come to the text, especially in America, we come to the text with this default. Our default isn't a blank slate. We're not open-minded. We tend to come to the text with suspicion. That's our default state. Because with Western individualism especially, we are terrified of losing our freedom. Even though Jesus promises us that his truth will set us free. We're so terrified of freedom, we're not able to even trust him enough to follow to that point. And the point of all this is is simply that it doesn't matter if our heads understand the profundity of Jesus' authority if our hearts are not willing to trust in it. It doesn't matter if our heads get it if our hearts don't. Uh, It doesn't matter if we hear Jesus' teaching, but then we go and we don't act on them. Because it's in the action, that's where our trust is displayed. That's where trust takes place that's where transformation has potential yes our beliefs are very important and we're going to spend a whole series talking about beliefs and and i think that is crucial and and so nobody is saying to set aside your thinking here of course not but the point of right belief is not right belief the point of right belief is to live right that's the point of right belief and that part takes Trust. That part takes a step where we actually follow Jesus. The mental dimension is important, but it's just a small part. The way I like to think of it is that it's like in a marriage. The mental part is just, I do. It's that commitment. I do. But God doesn't care about the I do as much as he cares about the marriage. And that's what happens day to day, day after day, hour by hour, in your lived moments. That's what God really cares about, and that's what he's calling us to. The way that Greg put it in the sermon from February 2021 As he said, don't confuse, I'm gonna get this right here, don't confuse the pledge of your life to Christ with the life that you've pledged to Christ. In other words, don't don't confuse that little first commitment to the thing that you're actually committing, which is your life, your day-to-day moments. This is why... In the Bible, mental assent, belief, is important, but it's not the show. That's not what it's about. It's about something bigger. It's about a transformed self. This is why the language in the Bible so often is about these these global claims about the self. You are dead to your old self. Not your old ideas, your old self. You are born again is the language that's used. It's this whole kind of self. Uh, It might start cognitively in your head, but it's meant to end up being a behavioral thing. It's meant to be characterological, <laughs> which I, I, that's, I love that word. It's a little <laughs> tough to say, but we're, we're going to go with it. Look at how important all of this is in the scripture. I, 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 I love these verses. So this is John 8.31. John 8.31 uh, says this, To the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. That is, if you actually act on these things, if you do these things, that's how you know if you're really my disciples. The, the living it out, the behaving, is the foundation of the whole thing, of what it means to be a disciple. Romans 12:1 says this. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies, your whole selves, as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper act of worship. It's our whole selves that that we are called to uh, live sacrificially. We have a living God. God doesn't want the dead sacrifices of the Old Testament. He wants a living sacrifice. He wants a person alive with the Spirit of God living in Christ-like ways in the world. It matters what we do. Uh, What we do is at least just as important as what we think. Maybe even more important is what I am saying. But We come to the text with very different assumptions than that. We come to the text with something like this oftentimes, and usually because we've been betrayed and we've been hurt, and we develop this criteria for when we're going to respond and when we're going to act. And it usually sounds something like this. Once it's proven, then I'll do it. That's usually the 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 criteria that we have, the principle that we live by. And In a lot of ways, that's a very wise principle, and there's a lot of things in the world that that works really well for, especially like in investments and things like that. Once it's proven, then I will do it. But I think that Jesus is saying that that doesn't work for everything. There are some things where you have to step into it first. There are some things where you have to actually act first, and then it gets proven. Like, for instance, this is one of my favorite verses, and and this is why I don't want to say I was glad that Greg got sick, because that's, you know, who says that? But (laughs) I'm glad that I got the opportunity to share this, because I just love this verse, and I love this insight, and I love sharing this with you. But Jesus says this, hey, do you want to know uh, if I am who I claim to be? Do you want to know if I'm the son of God or just some guy with a teaching? Well, here's how you know. He says this, Jesus answered them, My teaching is not my own, it comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. In other words, if you do these things, you will somehow find out if I'm telling the truth or not. The, the, the argument that Jesus gives, it's not an intellectual argument, it's a behavioral argument. What Jesus is saying is that if you do God's will, if you keep my commands, if you obey my teachings, then you will realize that I am who I say I am. And what he's saying there is that, look, transformation, it might start out in your head, it might start out with how you think, but it's ultimately grounded and fueled in how you live and in what you do. And and when I read this, it's just so encouraging to me and with all of my authority issues, I just love it because I feel like Jesus is saying this to me. I feel like Jesus is saying, oh, you don't trust other people? Fine, that's okay. I'll put the proof inside of you. That's what he's saying. You don't trust others? It's inside of you now. If you live the way I'm telling you to live, you will see that it's true. Doing first somehow internalizes Jesus' amazing authority. Somehow, when you act according to God's Spirit, that Spirit guides you in life and in truth and somehow seals that authority in your heart. I don't know how the Spirit does that, but that's the claim. That's the promise that Jesus gives. And it's a very low-cost offer. You, you can l- learn to live in these ways, and you can try to live in the ways that he teaches in the Sermon on the Mount, He's not telling anyone to jump off a cliff here. He's telling people to love others. He's telling people to share what you have, things like that. And if you do these things, what he's saying is that that will lead to an internal transformation. It's no wonder that what we do with our lives plays such an important role in the text. And I want to, this is sort of the magic act of the sermon today, but I want to bring these verses back up. So the first one, except I want to add one on each of these. So when you look at John 8, 31 to 32, it says this, To the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus says, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then, after that, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. In other words, if you hold to the teaching, if you live this out, then the truth will be known. In other words, it's action that leads to knowledge, which then leads to liberation. You see this also in Romans 12, 1 and 2. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies, your whole selves, as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And then he says this. And then he says this. (laughs) Ta-da! Well, I'll tell you what he says. It's a good thing I went to seminary. I could just tell you what he says. Although there's a nice comfort in being able to look at it on the screen. But what he says is uh, to do not follow the pattern of this world. That is, do not live how other people live, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So giving your whole self leads to living different than the world, which leads to this transformation of your mind. Doing precedes knowing which then leads to transformation. And then he says this, which is so profound. Greg pointed this out last night between coughs. He said, Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Somehow when you live this out, you end up with this ability to see if things are true or not. Knowledge follows living it out. And I just think that is so profound. But it's funny because we hear these verses a lot. The truth shall set you free. You see that on like Mazda commercials. I mean, that's just so popular in our culture. The truth will set you free. But they always skip over the first part, to live Christ-like. You know, isn't that funny? (laughs) Uh, Or uh, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We hear that a lot too. But we always skip over the give your whole life to this. Live Christ-like. We tend to just forget about that part. And that's the most important part of the whole passage. And I just think that's really... Interesting. And I think really what's going on here is there's some, and you know who knows the specifics of it, we just follow this, we, we, we trust God and we do this and the spirit works in this. There's some type of cyclical thing because you have to believe enough to try it out. But then you try it out and you have that internal evidence, you have those internal epiphanies, you have that sense of new perspective and new freedom and that increases your belief and your trust in Jesus, Which then increases your willingness to step out and experiment and try something new. To try to maybe love somebody that you have a hard time loving. And then you do that and that opens up new kind of portals in your soul. And then you trust more and so forth and so on. And I think there's something to that. <clears throat> but as I've looked at this and I've been thinking about this for the last 36 hours. I was really, really kind of convicted a little bit. Uh, Because I was thinking about Jonestown and these cult members. And I realized as I was thinking about this that whenever I see cults and whenever I see cult members doing things like committing suicide with space suits on and things like that, I have to admit that I have some really heavy, dark judgments about them. Like, I, I will look at that and I will say things like, they are crazy idiots, they are mindless sheep. How can they be so stupid? But as I've been wrestling with this text and this idea about authority issues and trust, one of the things that I'm realizing is that those judgments are profoundly misguided. Because the fact is, is that we are all called to be Christ-like. We are all, we're all of us, we're all called to grow in godliness. We are all called to trust others. Trust is the foundation of love. We are all called to trust. And yes, of course, our trust can be foolish, and our trust. We can get burned by our trust and we can fail. We can trust things and it could totally fail. But all of that, I think, is more dignified. It's, it's more dignified to fail while you trust than to fail to trust at all. It's more dignified to try and fail than to not even ever try. And really, failure to trust, like when you trust and it fails, that reveals courage, And a lot of times, a person who is always safe, well, maybe they're wise, but maybe they're also very afraid. And so as I've kind of wrestled with this, I've really looked at the Jonestown situation and other cults in a different light. And really, when you look at the Jonestown cult in particular, man, these were some really good people. And, And I don't know if you know anything about this, but I encourage you to look up Uh, This story because it's it's very touching. It's sad, but it's also somehow inspiring to me because the fact is is that the reason why they went down to South America is because what they wanted to do the people not the leaders not Jim Jones, they kind of got cuckoo and corrupted, but the members themselves they went to Jonestown because they wanted to establish a community where people were actually equal. They wanted to establish a community where there was actual racial reconciliation and racial equality. That's what they wanted. And they knew in order to do that, they had to get out of the systems of America where you have white supremacy and inequality built into the fabric of the system. So they went down there and established their own context so that they could have like a blank slate, a fresh start. Basically, what I'm saying is that they went down to Jonestown. They went down to Guyana because they wanted to learn how to love together which is exactly what our tagline is here at this church. The problem isn't the cult members. The problem isn't the people of Jonestown. The problem is that Jim Jones and his leaders were corrupt and uh, they betrayed them. And uh, people started to realize that this is falling apart and the leadership uh, has problems. And so they started writing letters saying, hey, things are going wrong down here and we need to get out of here. We need help. And so uh, uh, I think a representative, I think his name is Leo Ryan, is a representative from San Francisco. He flew down there to see what was going on and to see if he could help anybody. And they ended up killing him and Jones knew that because of that, he knew that the United States would retaliate. And then he took all of the people of Jonestown under gunpoint and forced them to drink this Kool-Aid. They weren't mindless sheep. They were betrayed. And, uh, and I just look at that, and I just had this transformation in my heart instead of thinking of them as mindless idiots, which is just so terribly judgmental. But now I see like, this dignity in them. And it's almost, it's like an inspiration. Like, look what they tried to do. Yeah, that's, that's more than I've tried to do in my life. And um, and I, I just felt proud that my Uncle Casey was part of the recovery team to bring those people home to their families. Uh, and the fact is, is that, you know, we all get betrayed. Uh, there's no shame in being betrayed. Despite my judgments of the people of Jonestown, my judgments were off. There's no shame in being betrayed if you trust earnestly, if you're trying to live godly, even Jesus was betrayed. Hello, Judas, right? And, and so why should I shame other people for being betrayed? That doesn't make any sense. Uh, the fact is, is that trusting is always dangerous, but we're called to trust anyway. Even when the pattern of this world, as Paul puts it, is full of deceit, betrayal, manipulation, there are hucksters around every corner, we're still called to trust. And It's hard. It's hard to trust. But let me just share a couple things that have been really helpful for me. And this is from John 14, 15. And John 14, 15, I don't know if it's going to come up because it's been acting a little wacky. But John 14, 15, this is an easy one. This one just simply says this it says, If you love me, keep my commands. And there are two things about this verse that have been really helpful for me. And really, it's just the two parts of the verse. The first one is, if you love me. In other words, fall in love with Jesus is the takeaway there. The first part is to fall in love with Jesus. And because the fact is is that it's easier to trust someone that you love. And the more you love a person, a lot of the times, the more you have the potential to trust them. But how? How do we fall in love with Jesus? Somebody who lived 2,000 years ago, we have this text, and I know it's, it's not the ideal situation, and Jesus even acknowledges this in the text, that those who come after the disciples, they're in a tougher spot. That's us. But I think part of that is, is we have to get to know Jesus personally, not just theologically, not just philosophically. We have to try to read the text, for instance, read the Gospels in a way, not that you're looking for theological insight, but rather you're watching Jesus in the text. Kind of like you're watching a loving father at the market. How does he act? How does that loving father at the market, how does he carry himself? How does he treat other people that he comes in contact with? You have to see the Jesus that's implied by the text, not just the Jesus of the text. I think that's a big part of it. We've also talked about practicing God's presence and, and so forth. Um, When I do this, and the more I've done this, and the more I've tried to learn to know Jesus and not just learn about Jesus, the more that I've seen, you know, (laughs) Jesus is radically different than a lot of the cult leaders and uh, scam artist leaders that you see in the world. Jesus is, is the opposite of a lot of them. Jesus is far more meek. Jesus is sacrificial. He's other-oriented. He has a servant posture. He's gentle. He's peaceful. He's full of joy. And, and he's really, when Jesus comes onto the scene, he's all about the kingdom of God and he's almost always about others. He's rarely about himself, even though he is the son of God. And I think that's amazing. When you look at cult leaders, even though they might say nice things, it always ends up being about them, not about the people who are there. And this is why I think it's interesting that whenever you find in the Bible, maybe not every time, because I haven't looked at every case, but it's got to be at least 80%. When you look in the Old Testament and the New Testament, whenever you see a command to keep the Lord's commands, it almost always comes right after a command to love the Lord love the lord your god with all your heart soul and mind and keep his commandments keep his statutes and so forth and and i think the reason for that is it just totally makes sense that that if if the way, and I did a sermon on this in November called "The Path is a Person, the Way is Relational," and and if that's true, if the way to God is a relational path, well, then it just makes sense that love would be the foundation of this. And so, the question is: is do you feel like you know Jesus, or do you know just about Jesus? Do you feel like you love Jesus, or do you feel like you simply believe in Jesus? And if you're, and I'm just scratching the surface on this myself, but. My challenge to you is to think about that. And if you feel like you just know about Jesus, work toward getting to know Jesus on a personal level, uh, not just on uh, an intellectual level. Because the fact is, is that there's always going to be charlatans uh, until God comes to end the show. There will be charlatans. And there always has been charlatans. Uh, In fact, the Apostle Paul, in 2 Corinthians 11, talked about what he calls the super apostles. (laughs) And these were basically people who were charging money to give, you know, TED talks, basically. And Paul warned them, he said, listen, be careful of anybody who gives you a gospel other than the one that we preached. Be careful of anybody who gives you something other than a simple devotion to Christ. Because The hucksters and the charlatans and the super apostles, there will always be Christ and something else. Christ and America. Christ and wealth. Christ and beauty. Whatever it is, uh, it's always going to be something in addition to Jesus. And that should be a big red flag. Or here's another thing to ask. This church as well. Does my church encourage a devotion to Christ? Or does it emphasize something else? We should always be asking that of ourselves and whichever church we're a part of. Here's another way of asking the question. Do I leave my church knowing more about how great Jesus is or do I just learn how great the pastor is? Because, man, you don't want to be at a church where you learn about how great the pastor is because the pastor is not that great. (laughs) I am not worth knowing. Jesus is worth knowing. And, And one of the things I love about this leadership team is I feel like we get that. You know, Greg, Shauna, Cedric, me, whoever, we, we know it's about Jesus, it's not about us. And so from this loving relationship, this goes to my second point, which is when Jesus says to keep my commands, or the way I would put it is change your default. And the reason why I say that is because John uh, uses the word keep, which is tereo in Greek. He says keep my commands, not obey my commands. That's a different word. The word obey is uh, hupakuo, and that means to obey. But that's sort of like this cause and effect sort of obey. This is when Jesus tells the disciples, look, tell that tree to get up and skedaddle and it'll get up and skedaddle. The tree has no choice in the matter. That's what hupakuo is. But that's not what Jesus is calling his disciples to. Not that mindless sort of obedience. He's calling us to keep the commands. He's calling us to tereo the commands. In other words, what he's calling us to is to guard and to uh, 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 defend the commands. What, what that means is that God's commands, this is a precious thing. You have life in these things. Guard this. uh, Prioritize this. In, In Matthew 23, he tells the disciples, you have one teacher, the Messiah, and you are all brothers and sisters. That's another way of saying prioritize my teaching. Consider these teachings precious. Guard them. And when I say guard them, that's a perspective shift for a lot of us because a lot of times we come in attacking them. That's our default. Our default is one of suspicion. Jesus invites us to have a default of trust. Not to be mindless, not to be mindless, because God wants us thinking, but he wants us to uh, doubt and to wrestle with the text from inside of a loving relationship, not from the outside of a loving relationship. He wants us in that relationship, wrestling with it, uh, not outside. In other words, if you have doubts, of course you're going to have doubts. This is complicated stuff. These are big ideas. You're going to have doubts. But when you are guarding the commandments, when you are to reo the commands, what that means is that you continue to wrestle with it, trusting that there's going to be an answer. Trusting that there's going to be an answer. And that might take you five years to get to the answer, or ten years, or you might not get to the answer here, but because you do this from a point of loving Jesus, you trust that there is an answer because you trust in Jesus. Uh, And and really, what I think is interesting about this, as I've thought about this, is that love relationships really do change all of these ideas. Uh, Obey, submit, comply, things like that. Those are all different in love relationships. I can think of, uh, in my relationship with Barbara, we comply and submit and obey one another all the time on on various things, even if you just take a little part of our life. I'm going to get very personal here, but it'll be very appropriate, I I promise. But consider our shower, for instance. Now, uh, Barbara, when she takes a shower, she likes the setting. It's like a gentle rainfall, you know, and there's just, there's water here and there and all over the place. I don't have time for that, you know? I don't have time for this gentle rainfall. I need the flurry of water that comes in this bolt of, of energetic kind of agua, basically. I need the judgment of Poseidon. That's what I need. That's because I don't have time for the gentle rainfall. But here's what's really cool is when I'm done with my shower, I always click it over to her setting. And when she's done, she always clicks it over to mine. So whenever we go in the shower, it's always set for us. And that's just this little way that we comply with one another. Also in the shower, I, uh, I don't like mildew on the shower curtain. So uh, when I get out of the shower, I always spread the shower curtain so it has a, a lot of surface area to dry. She doesn't think that makes sense. She thinks that by spreading out the curtain, it prevents airflow from getting back there. And it keeps, the, it, it keeps mildew in there. So she thinks that it's better to you know accordion it. I don't have a good word for that. Uh, but she has deferred to me on this. In the kitchen, like I like to use a cutting board for my breakfast and sometimes I'll use it for lunch and dinner and then wash it at the end of the night after I'm done cutting stuff for the day. Now, that doesn't... I hear some amens. <laughs> it's the first amen I've gotten today. That's, I don't know what that says about my sermon. But she has this crazy idea that you should wash the cutting board after every use. And I just think that's wasteful. But I defer to her on that one. But see how obeying and complying in a love relationship, it's actually kind of a fun thing. It's actually an, an energizing thing. When you love the Lord, obeying his commandments, it should be a delight. It should be, and this, in fact, even in the Old Testament and Psalm, David talks a lot about delighting in the Lord. That's what that means. And, uh, and so it's so important to do this from a perspective of love. Ultimately, and this is what I'll close with this, ultimately, our authority issues are all trust issues. That's always the way it's going to be. And trust is scary and dangerous, and God knows that. And, and we have to be careful. And God knows that also. God is patient. This is why love is patient, because we have to be careful with it. And trust is needed for growth, and it's needed for love. And of course, there's no shame in being duped or betrayed, because even Jesus was betrayed and duped by Judas, The real pity is for the person who squanders this amazing authority that we have in Jesus because of their own fear of trust. That is the real pity. And so that's what I invite people to think about is your own trust issues like I've thought about mine. Uh, I think that we can live a life where we believe in Jesus. But we can do that for our whole life. Where we believe that Jesus, we might even believe that Jesus is the son of God. But we do that with no actual trust in Jesus. (laughs) And what that always looks like is that we follow Jesus wherever it's convenient until we come upon one of his teachings that sort of challenge our own assumptions or or challenge our own common sense about something. And then we're like, well, we have to qualify our belief in Jesus, and that's where we backpedal a little bit. But the fact is, is that if you are obeying Jesus out of this love relationship, if you're really trusting in Jesus as your one true teacher, well, then these places these are the very places that are potentially transformational for you. It's the places that are are hard, the the hot, kind of sharp teachings, the ones that really poke you in the eye, that's where there's real potential for transformation. Because the other ones that you agree with, well, you can't really change there because you already agree with them. It's the places where you don't agree, that's where there's real opportunity. Uh, And so every challenging teaching, I think, holds this, Great potential treasure of transformation. We should always be looking for those places. Where is Jesus' teaching hardest for me? Where is it most challenging? Because that's where potential is. It's, it's that spot, that's where my trust gets really tested. That's where I really show my trust. That is where trust grows, and eventually, because I trust in our amazing authority, because I think Jesus is who he says he is, when I trust, even on those hard things, I believe that that's also where all of my authority issues eventually suffocate and die. It's in those tough spots, that's where real transformation is bound to happen, in the places where God challenges us. Thank you for listening. I know that's sort of a weird ending. I was hoping to uh, maybe do like a juggling act or something, but... I don't, that's what I got. So I I have, uh, well, thank you so much for that. Thanks. Uh, I, I do have a couple quick announcements though. First of all, um, MuseCast is not taking over the church. I was being, I got a little out of a hand. Uh, I apologize about that, but we are going to be meeting on Tuesday at four o'clock on YouTube. So please join us for that. Uh, if you need prayer, please come up. We have some prayer people up here. We also have prayer options online and, um, gathering groups on Monday. Uh, join us for, if you want to talk about this stuff, if you want to talk about your own kind of wrestling with this text, man, that's a great place to do it. And, uh, Thanks for your attention and uh, have a blessed day. Have a blessed week. Go out and love on the world.